Rome wasn't built in a day, but Babylon was conquered in one. We're going to be talking about Babylon again today in Revelation chapter 18, and this is a continuation from Revelation chapter 17 where we talked about Babylon. So I want to take a few minutes here just at the beginning to dig into Babylon a little bit more. Let's get our minds wrapped around what is it talking about when it says Babylon, especially in Revelation, but even in the whole Bible. What do we mean when we talk about Babylon? And so in order to do that, we're going to have to go back a little ways to Daniel chapter 5. Now, I'm just going to be referencing, I'm going to share the story and reference a couple verses in Daniel 4 and 5. Um, So you're welcome to turn there, but you don't have to if you want to just get your Bible open to Revelation 18. That's where most of our time will be spent. So in Daniel chapter 5, we meet a new king, the king regent, Belshazzar. And this particular scene opens up with a party. He's throwing a feast. He's having a party with a thousand of his friends. And uh, after having a little bit to drink, he decides that it would be a good idea to upgrade their drinkware, upgrade their glassware from just the normal stuff they were using to why don't they go get the special cups and vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem when he plundered it. Now, these weren't ordinary cups. These were holy. They were set apart. They were used in service and worship to God. And his idea was, let's, get, let's use those to get drunk with. And he thought it was a good idea, although you can imagine it probably wasn't a good idea. And he finds that out fairly quickly when, out of nowhere, a disembodied hand floating in the air writes four words on the wall. You can imagine that would probably freak you out a little bit. Well, it freaked them out. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what it meant. They couldn't interpret it. So they get all the wise men together, come read this. What does this mean? Can you interpret this? And they can't figure it out either until finally someone remembers Daniel. And so they bring Daniel. Daniel comes in and and the king says to Daniel, if you can interpret this, I'm going to give you riches. I'm going to give you status. And Daniel says, keep your riches. Keep your status. I don't want them, but I will interpret it for you. So Daniel has a fairly lengthy interpretation. He has this whole introduction where he recounts kind of the way that Babylon's leaders had been acting and and makes it clear that Belshazzar has not learned from them. But the the gist of it, what's the gist of the message that was written on the wall there? It's this. Your time is up. Your number has been called. Not only you, but your kingdom is coming to an end. Now, surprisingly, Belshazzar is so so, um, surprised by this that he's, he's not distraught, he's happy, he's excited. Wow, that was amazing that you did that. Here is, he gives him riches, he gives Daniel status, but it doesn't matter. Verses 30 and 31 of Daniel chapter 5 says this, That very night Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, don't miss this. It's easy to read Daniel chapter 5 and just go, okay, This judgment against the king, he's not the king anymore, there's a new king. It's more than just a new king. Overnight, there was a total regime change. And if you don't pay attention, you'll miss it. Darius the Mede, part of the Medes and the Persians, has taken over. Babylon is no more in one night. And we'll see that later on in Revelation 18, repeated several times. We don't get a lot of information in Daniel, but we have some more information from history. So as it turns out, at that time, Babylon, the city, was surrounded, was besieged by the Persian army. All that was left of Babylon was this one final city. And it's kind of funny to think they're under siege, they're surrounded by an army, and what are they doing? They're partying. But here's the deal. Their walls were so thick 
And they had so much food stocked up, it would last them years. They weren't afraid of a little siege. There's nothing that can touch us, Babylon. We are great. Nobody can come against us. They even had the river Euphrates ran right through the city. And so, because of that pride and arrogance, they were throwing a party in the midst of a siege. And so that night, the Persian army diverted the Euphrates River, which is no small task, and with a handful of soldiers, crawled in through the waterway and took the city with almost no resistance. In one night, Babylon fell because of the pride and the arrogance of its leaders. Now, we see the ending of Babylon there, but that's not the first time that pride and arrogance has had an effect on the leaders of Babylon. If you go back just one chapter to Daniel chapter 4, we see a story about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, who had been specifically warned about this and had already seen God's glory and power revealed a couple different times, he gets up on the top of his palace roof and he says this, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Look at me. Look at how great I am. Look at all that I have accomplished And while the words are still in his mouth, God's judgment that had been told before comes against him. He becomes like an animal. He's driven out into the wilderness to live for the next seven years eating grass like a beast. We see that that theme of pride and arrogance in Babylon's leaders. But it's not just here. It goes all the way back to the beginning of Babylon. All the way back to Genesis chapter 11. Pastor Bob talked about this last week. The beginning of Babylon is found there with the Tower of, Babel, Tower of Babel. That's the first place that we see Babylon mentioned, is with the Tower of Babel. And what was going on with the Tower of Babel? <clears throat> how can we make ourselves great without God? Apart from God, how can we make a name for ourselves? How can we make ourselves great? And even though that's the first place that we see that theme in Babylon, it's actually not the first place that we see that in the Bible. In order to get that, we actually have to go back a few chapters more to Genesis chapter 3, to the fall of humanity. On that day, humanity believed a lie. And the lie was that God didn't actually have their best interests at heart. God didn't actually want what was best for them, and so they needed to go off and figure it out for themselves. This idea that God doesn't want you to be happy, he doesn't want you to be fulfilled, And so, you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. That's the essence of the lie that Adam and Eve believed that day. And the seeds of Babylon were planted. The foundation of Babylon was being built. Babylon, as an idea, not just as a physical country, but Babylon, what it represents in the Bible is the human city. And this human city is juxtaposed against the city of God, which is Jerusalem, The idea of Babylon is that when humans don't believe that God has their best in mind, then we have to figure it out on our own. Babylon is humanity's best effort to save ourselves from the sorrow of this world. To mitigate the effects of the fall by doing whatever we think is going to make us happy. And honestly, let's just put the cards out on the table here. If that was true, if God doesn't love us, if God doesn't really care about us, then Babylon is our best shot at living our best life now. But if that's not true, well, 
Let's turn to Revelation chapter 18 and see what we find. Overall, I mentioned this earlier, the big picture of of Revelation 18 is the fall of Babylon. It's broken up into three sections. And so let me just kind of outline this for you so you can kind of see where we're going, keep track of it. The first eight verses are heaven's perspective on the fall of Babylon. This is the, from the perspective of heaven, what, what does the fall of Babylon look like? What does it mean? Heaven's perspective. Then we get to verses 9 through 19, and we see the worldly res- perspective, the human perspective, how the world responds when Babylon falls. And then the last few verses, verses 20 through 24, we come back once again to the heavenly perspective. And what we find there is a question. And I want to actually spoil the sermon right now and ask you this question now so you can be thinking about it throughout the rest of the message. The question is, will you mourn or will you rejoice when Babylon falls? Will you mourn or will you rejoice when Babylon falls? So with that, let's jump into this first section. We're going to read the first eight verses here of Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with his mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality." And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds." Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. This first section, like I mentioned before, is the heavenly perspective on the fall of Babylon. And so I want to give you kind of the big picture of this section, then we're going, to, we're going to work through some of the details. We're really trying to paint a portrait, a picture of Babylon this morning, and this is going to add some color to it as we go through some of those details. So first of all, like I mentioned before, this is about the fall of Babylon. We have that phrase, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. But it's not the first time that you've heard that phrase. In fact, we, found, we heard it in Revelation 14.8. We've also heard it in Isaiah 21 and Jeremiah 51. Back in the Old Testament prophets, when this is talked about, it's more immediate, there's an immediate application to the actual fall of the physical country of Babylon at that time. And so there's a lot of imagery that's coming out of that that we should be thinking about is the literal fall of Babylon that we talked about just a few minutes ago. And so Babylon has fallen. Babylon is going to fall, as we'll see later on in the passage here. And where is this coming from? Is this just a coincidence? Is this just a random historical thing that that Revelation or, or that John is seeing? Or does God have something to do with it? And what we get out of this passage is God has something to do with this. He is judging Babylon. 
In chapter 17, we saw something about the kings of the earth turning on Babylon. And although that is certainly true, this doesn't get rid of the fact that God is involved in the, ba- in the judgment of Babylon here. God is orchestrating this. He is pouring out his wrath and his judgment on Babylon. So that's the big picture in these first eight verses. But let's look at a few details that we see in the text. The first one is in verse 2. Right after it says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It says, she has become a dwelling place for demons. There's a couple things here to pay attention to. Number one, this human city, right, the pinnacle of human achievement, of, of the best human city we can come up with, is now inhospitable for humans. It's just a place for demons to live. And there's something else there, and it doesn't clearly say it here, but it's what comes to my mind as I read this, that when the walls come tumbling down, when When you look behind the curtain and you see what was really going on behind the scenes in Babylon in the human city, there's something demonic. It's not just now that it's become a city for demons. I think it always was a city for demons. And this speaks to the spiritual aspect of Babylon. We're going to be talking a lot about the physical and material when we talk about Babylon today. But there's a spiritual aspect to it as well. And the influence of of demons in human history in the human city of Babylon. That's verse 2. Verse 3, we're actually going to skip for right now. It's talking about the world's response, and we're going to get, there's a whole big section later on in the passage about that, so we're going to get to that later. But we get to verse 4, and there's a change in voices. We had the first voice, now we have a second voice. And this voice says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. Judgment is coming, destruction is coming. Get out of there. God is calling his people to get out of there. But notice something important. This isn't a repent and get out. This isn't a, all you wicked people that are a part of Babylon, you need to get out of there. This is your last chance. This, this speaks to the thing that we see oftentimes in Scripture, this idea that we live in the world, but we're, not called to be, we're called to not be of the world. Jesus prays about this in John 17. Lord, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We live in Babylon. That's the reality here, and yet... The time is short. Time is coming out, so get out of there before God destroys it. That's what he's calling his people to do. And it brings up the question of why. Why is God destroying Babylon? And we get the answer in verse 5. For her sins are heaped high as heaven. Her sins are heaped high as heaven. God is destroying Babylon because of her sin. And there's something really cool here. One of the guys in our Monday morning study pointed this out. Bring your mind back to the, to the Tower of Babel. What were they trying to do? They were trying to build a tower that would reach all the way up to heaven. And yet, ironically, God has to come down in order to see it. But here, it looks like they've accomplished their goal. They've, they've made a monument that reaches all the way up to heaven, but not in the way that they planned. It's their sins piled one on top of the other that now reach all the way up to heaven. And it's because of the vast sinfulness of humanity in Babylon that God is going to destroy it. God is going to wipe it out in a single day. So we have, we have that about, that, that's the why, and the next couple verses are talked about, this paying her back, um, paying her back what is due to her, this double portion of God's wrath over her. 
Another thing in verse 7 that we see is the pride and arrogance. We talked about this with Belshazzar, with Nebuchadnezzar, with the Tower of Babel, this theme of pride and arrogance in Babylon's leaders, and we see it right here. Halfway through 7, it says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. You see the arrogance there? You can't do anything to take me down. I'm here to stay. Babylon represents the pinnacle of human achievement, all that we have done, and nothing can ever tear that down. Look at all that we have accomplished. And yet, it's because of that. Look at the next verse, verse 8. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Pride comes before the fall, and the bigger they are, the harder they fall. God is wiping out Babylon in a single day because of her pride and arrogance. No one can touch me. Look at how great I am. Just think about Belshazzar having a party in the midst of a siege. No one can touch us. And God goes, yeah, that's not true. In a single day, we'll see later, in a single hour, he's going to wipe it all out. God's righteous judgment is going to come upon humanity. Humanity's greatest achievement, the pinnacle of human achievement in this human city, the city of Babylon. And the whole world will be affected. That brings us to this next section. Now, I'm not going to read the whole section. I'm just going to read a sample here, verses 9 and 10. And we're going to see there's a repeated pattern throughout the rest of, throughout that section in the chapter. So let's read Revelation 18, 9 and 10. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. So there's two different things you need to pay attention to. Number one is there's three different groups that are represented. We read about the first one, the kings of the earth. The second one is the merchants of the earth, and the third one is the sailors. So the kings of the earth, what do they represent? These are the rulers of the nations in the world, right? These are the, the governing authorities, whatever, whatever that looks like, the governing authorities, the rulers of the nations in the world. That's who they represent. Then you have the merchants. And these are the people who buy, sell, and trade. This is the, the heart of the economy, right? These are the, the corporations and businesses, the people that are selling all of the stuff to everybody. And then lastly, very closely tied to that, is the sailors or the shipping industry, how does all of that stuff get to the people who are buying it? Well, the sailors and the people that are shipping it to them. So those are the three different groups of people that are represented here in this section of Revelation 18. The kings, the merchants, and the sailors. So those three each have a pattern of four. There's four things that they share in common each time. And so the first thing that we see there is that they stand far off. All three of those groups, when Babylon's being destroyed, they, they stand far off. They're not rushing in to try to save Babylon. They're not identifying themselves with Babylon. They're standing. They're keeping their distance. They're standing far off. So that's the first thing. They all do that. The second thing that they all do is they mourn. They weep. They wail. They cry. They mourn over the loss of the great city of Babylon. And then the third thing is we get the answer to why. Why are they mourning? Why are they so sad? And so the kings of the earth, they're mourning because they've lost their luxury. They were living the high life in Babylon, and now that Babylon is gone, their luxury is gone, and they can't live that way anymore. The merchants have lost their revenue. They've lost their wealth. Babylon was the place where they sold all of their stuff, and they don't have anybody to sell it to anymore, so they have lost their wealth. So that's why they're mourning. That's why they're crying. And then thirdly, 
we have the sailors, and it's basically the same thing. They have nowhere to ship their goods anymore, nowhere to take it, and so they've lost their wealth. They've lost their money as well. When you look at the chapter, when you look at this section from that perspective, you start to see something. What is this all about? What does this all resemble? And very down at the bottom, we see this heart of consumerism. And it actually relates even to chapter 17. Pastor Bob talked about Babylon being the propagator of all these false religions. And at the heart of false religion, there's something similar that resembles consumerism as well. What can I get out of this? What can I do in my life to make myself happy? I'll follow this religion over here because of what it gives me. And it makes sense. Just follow me on this. If humans who reject God and are trying to find happiness on their own and fulfillment on their own, what is one of the main ways that we do that? Buying things, materialism, consumerism. That's the theme that we see throughout this chapter. And we get a whole list in verse 12 of all the different stuff that they would sell. And we don't, we're not going to go through the whole list, but I'll give you some categories that they fit into. The first is expensive jewelry, designer clothing, exotic building materials, think a really nice house, expensive spices and perfumes, extravagant food. And as John is hearing this, as John is receiving this revelation, you know right where his mind would have gone to? To Rome. This is exactly what was going on at Rome, in Rome at that time with the rich and powerful. This so resembled Rome. But not just Rome. It also resembles Babylon as well. This is the kind of stuff you could get in Babylon. This is why you wanted to live in Babylon was to have access to these things. But that was a long time ago. Those, those nations are gone now, and we don't deal with this issue anymore, right? Where we are today, we don't deal with materialism and consumerism, that kind of stuff, right? Did you know that Americans, on average, Americans own 300,000 things? 300,000. I challenge you to go home and try to count your stuff today. I have a feeling you can't count that high, no offense. Something that goes right along with that is that in the last 50 years, the average American home has tripled in size. Where are you going to put all that stuff? We need a bigger home, so we get a bigger home and we can fit all of our stuff. And yet, despite that, somewhere between 10 and 40%, I couldn't nail down an exact, but somewhere between 10 and 40% of Americans rent an off-site storage unit. Off-site storage unit. We still don't have, even though our homes are bigger, we still don't have enough space for our stuff And so we have to rent somewhere else to put it. Is anyone feeling called out right now? Don't raise your hands. Why do we do this? Why do we want so many things? Well, in the words of Tom Haverford of Pawnee, Indiana, love fades away, but things, things are forever. (laughs) This is the song of Babylon God doesn't love us. We need to figure out how to love ourselves. So let's go out and buy all the things that we want that we know will make us happy. Treat yourself. You deserve this. But where does it leave us? Empty and usually broke. We are in bondage to the God of stuff. Working jobs we hate so we can buy stuff we don't need to impress people we don't even know. The stuff you own ends up owning you. 
and we live in Babylon. This is a problem for us too. Did you know this very morning I came in representing a false god? I am bearing the name of a false god on me right now, the winged goddess of victory. Nike. Nike is the Greek goddess of victory. Now, I'm being a little facetious here. Obviously, I'm not really representing a false god because I'm walking all over her all day. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a bad joke. Now, there's, there's a striking example here, something I want to share. This is kind of to the extreme, but I think it still helps us realize the, biggest, the big problem that this is, even in the church. So, um, let me tell you about the social media account, Preachers and Sneakers. So preachers and then an N, sneakers, all one word. And so let me tell you about it. A few years ago, there was a guy who woke up late on Sunday morning and didn't make it to church. And so he decided just to watch church online. Now, this was before everyone started live streaming. And so he had to pick one of the mega churches to watch. As he turned it on, he noticed that the preacher, the pastor, was wearing a really nice pair of shoes. And uh, this guy, he, he had an eye for those things. He's what people call a sneaker head, which I just learned that term this last week. <clears throat> and so he, he knew this was a nice pair of Nike, limited edition, unique Nike sneakers. And so he decided to post a picture of the pastor online, and next to it, he, post, he posted the price of those shoes, and it blew up overnight. People were going crazy for it. And so he started, he started a social media account, media account dedicated to him, where he would take pictures that pastors would post of themselves, and, and you could see the shoes in the post, and then he would post next to it the average price of how much people paid for those shoes. And I looked through, um, and, and these shoes, they're not like really nice, high-quality leather shoes or something like that, that you wouldn't really know cost that much. These are flashy, unique, custom Nikes. So I looked through the posts this last week, just a handful of them, and from what I found on the cheap side, the cheapest ones that I saw were $600, $600 for a pair of shoes. On the upper end, you're looking at $1,800, $2,000 for a pair of shoes that these pastors are wearing to preach in. Now, what is the point of wearing shoes like that? It's not utility. It's not because they'll last you the rest of your life and they're really good for the value. It's people wear shoes like that to feel good about themselves, to make other people think that they look cool. I have to ask you this morning, if you came here to see Pastor Ryan in his Yeezys and his Louis Vuitton and his $200 haircut, you're going to be sorely disappointed. I cut my own hair. And I'm not trying to rag on these preachers. I'm just asking the question, why? Does this further the gospel of Jesus or the good news of their wealth? For those people that go to a church like this, why, like that, why do you go to that church? Is it so that you can tell everybody, I go to the church with the celebrity pastor who's really stylish and everybody thinks is cool? Or do you go to church so that you can hear the word of God preached faithfully? Now, for all of you, none of you go to those churches. You're coming here. So that's not an issue. You don't have a problem with this. That's not an issue in your life at all. But the truth is we still live in Babylon. And it still is a problem. And the problem is that we find our identity and our value and our hope in the things that we buy. For some of you, it's quality. You want really nice things because that makes you feel good about yourself. 
For some of you, it's just quantity. You just keep buying things to try to fill that hole in your life. And you've got Amazon dropping off packages three times a week. Can I confess something to you? I thought of that line a week ago, and then this last week, Amazon showed up at our door three times and FedEx once. (laughs) Come on. I've got this problem too. This is the essence of Babylon. God isn't going to take care of me, so I have to take care of myself. And I do that by buying all sorts of things to try to fill up the God-shaped hole inside of me. Now, I want to point out really quickly here, there's a difference between utility and identity. It's okay to have things. We all have things. It's okay to buy things. It's even okay to buy things that we just want and we don't need. That's fine. The problem is, why are you buying it? Are you buying it because it's useful? in the life that I live for God, or are you buying it because it makes me feel good? Because I promise you here, I'm not trying to guilt trip you, I'm just trying to tell you that it doesn't work. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Babylon is the anti-gospel. God doesn't love you, so you have to find a way to save yourself. But the true gospel is that we've rebelled against God. We turned our backs on him. We wanted to do it on our own. And despite that, God loved us so much that he sent his son to be the savior of the world. We can't save ourselves. No matter how much money you have, no matter how much stuff you own, it'll never work We're going to constantly keep trying, though. But the truth is, what we need to do is we need to give up and recognize there is only one answer to the problem of suffering and sin and sorrow in the world, and it's Jesus. If Jesus is enough, what do we need all of this stuff for? You go back to Revelation 18. They're all standing Far off, they're all standing on the shores of Babylon, watching it burn, and they're mourning, they're weeping, they're crying. Why? Because all of their stuff is gone. I want you to imagine that your house burns down tonight. Everything you own is gone in a puff of smoke. How do you respond? What do you think? Well, maybe you go, ah, it's okay, I've got insurance. I can just go out and buy all that stuff again. In fact, that would be kind of nice. I could buy new stuff. What if instead you said, it's okay, Jesus is still the king, and all my hope and my trust and my joy is in him. And that's the choice that we're left with as we get to the last section of Revelation 18. Let's read verses 20 through 24. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, For God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute uh, flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will be shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, 
and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Right before verse 20, we saw the human, the the earthly reaction to the fall of Babylon, and it was mourning. But then we see the heavenly reaction in verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. And this goes back to that question I asked at the very beginning. When Babylon falls, will you mourn or will you rejoice? Will you mourn with the earth or will you rejoice with heaven? And I can tell you right now, I promise you that every single year in Babylon, a new iPhone comes out. In the New Jerusalem, when Jesus recreates the world, I wouldn't count on it. Now, for all you self-righteous Android users out there, okay, it's the same thing. (laughs) Babylon was a great city. It was thriving. If you look at verses 22 through 24, we see all that was lost If you were to walk through through Babylon, you'd have music in the streets. You'd have all the material stuff you could buy. You'd have plenty of food and exciting nightlife. People getting married, but not anymore. It's quiet. It's desolate. It's gone. And when the curtain is pulled back, we find out that it was all a lie. Look at the last part of verse 23. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. The lie was that this was the answer. This was the best that humans could come up with in finding fulfillment and satisfaction in life, and it was all a lie. Those things can't really satisfy us. Those things can't really make us happy. They can't fulfill us. Only Jesus can. And that's the choice before us today. When materialism and consumerism in the world is brought to a fiery end, will you mourn with the people of the earth, or will you rejoice with God's people? All of this stuff is an obstacle to finding true joy in Jesus. And I stand before you today saying, I've got this issue too. I know these things. I've learned these things. And then 30 seconds later, I'm looking for fulfillment in something else. You know, it's more than just buying things, right? It's, maybe shopping isn't your issue. I, I talked to somebody after first service that, that they go too far on the other side. They're very frugal. They're very good at not buying things they don't need. And yet, so much of their fulfillment and satisfaction comes from that, from being frugal. It doesn't matter what it is, it's all a false god, it's all false idols that are coming straight out of Babylon. Anytime we find our fulfillment and our satisfaction in anything else but God. Because remember, the point isn't the stuff, it's okay to buy things that are useful, that are helpful as we live our life for God. But ask yourself that question. Am I buying this because it's useful to my life as I love God and others? Or am I buying this to try to fulfill something deep inside of me that feels empty? And so with that, I want to give you a challenge this week. I want to challenge you, um, just for the next seven days, just through Saturday, only buy what you need. Don't buy anything this next week that you just want. Only buy your needs and try practice fulfilling your wants with Jesus. And we do that by reading his word, by praying, by by getting together with other believers and knowing him together. And when you're faced with that feeling to buy something to make yourself happy, ask yourself, if Jesus really is enough, why do I need this? This week, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the only one 
that can truly satisfy. Eternal life is this, to know God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Eternal, extravagant, wonderful life is knowing God, not in the things that we buy. And to direct your attention once again to how great Jesus is, I want to give you a sneak peek of next week. Um, we're going to read Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That, my friends, is our hope and our consolation. All I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Let's pray. God, we come before you now and repent of our sin. Lord, we repent that we have tried to find satisfaction and fulfillment in the things that you have given rather than you yourself, Lord. God, we thank you for the wonderful gifts you've given in life, and yet, God, I pray that we would be able to get away, we'd be able to see the idolatry that takes place in our heart, and that we would instead, instead look for our hope and our satisfaction and our fulfillment in you. Lord, Jesus, you are more than we could ever imagine you are more than we could ever hope, and in you is everything that we need in life. And God, I pray that you would reveal that to us today. God, I pray that you would help us to see that, so that we wouldn't look to those things for satisfaction, but that we would look to you and you alone. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus, our hope and our Savior. Amen.